So in your Bibles, studying the Psalms, Psalm 102 this evening, and this is a, man, I, this was another fun one. This was one I did not know was a Messianic Psalm. This was news to me that it was a Messianic Psalm. Um, studying the Psalms, uh, like, like a box of chocolates, they're useful for all kinds of things. This was the hymn book, the prayer book of the Israelites. Uh, so Psalm 102, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, verses 1 through 11 is where I'm going to start. I'm going to read all 11 um, because this is kind of uh, broken down into essentially four sections, okay? So verses 1 through 11 is the first section. You can see it's entitled, A Prayer of an Afflicted Man When He is Faint and Pours Out His Lament Before the Lord. Hold on to that. Um, verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I'm in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. My days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. Because of my loud groaning, I am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath. For you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So we're not sure who wrote this. Some Most think David. However, the timeline of the organization of the Psalms brings some conflict to that idea. And I'll spare you all the technical details, uh, but I read a, read a really interesting um, uh, proposition that uh, this was not David, and it seemed more compelling, though most say it, might, it was probably David. So we see early on that this man is struggling. He feels like his days are vanishing, his life's withering like grass, he's completely dry, he's running on empty, he's crying out to the Lord, but is wondering if the Lord is even listening. There certainly isn't any instant response coming from the heavens. It seems that God is silent. Which, as I wrote that, I thought, I suddenly had a memory of my grandma Morrison. My grandma Morrison loved magnets. Uh, she had magnets all over her fridge. And uh, the, only other, the only other thing that she loved as much as magnets were comic strips. So underneath all those magnets were also lots of comic strips that she had cut out. Her fridge was just covered in magnets and comic strips, and so one of my favorite pastimes when we visited Grandpa and Grandma Morrison was to just stand there at the fridge and read magnets and comic strips and things like that, and I have all kinds of little sayings and things that are in my head, mostly from Grandma's fridge, and this was one of them. One of the fur magnets said, I believe in the sun when it does not shine. I believe in God when He is silent, and that's true. It should be remembered, right? Uh, when, God, when God seems silent, just like the, the way the Scriptures talk, they talk about uh, the wind. Like we know, we know that God is there because we, just like we know the wind is there. Okay? Uh, but likewise, the sun comes up and the sun rises and sets every day. Um, and likewise, God sits on His throne every day. And you should remember that. But this man, at this stage, these first verses, sees only clouds. And they're too thick and too dark for his vision to see the heavens, to, to, to be assured that God is there. And there are several comparisons made in this first section to describe how he feels. And in my version, um, it's kind of a rudimentary uh, translation, 
Uh, he actually names three types of birds. My version only names the owl and then a bird alone on the roof. But one of those translations of owl might be a bird more akin to a pelican. And the bird alone on a roof would be like a sparrow. So how many of you have ever found yourself ever saying to God, man, I just feel like a pelican in the wilderness. Where are you? <laughs> I feel like an owl in the desert. <laughs> Anybody relate to that? Not quite. Not the analogy you might use, but you can probably relate to the feeling of isolation and loneliness that whoever wrote this psalm is expressing. Yeah? Just especially, I think more so than, more so than ever, we've just gone through this period in our history where isolation and loneliness became our reality. That uh, outside of our families, we had not much contact. I was just talking with Debbie about her mom and how grateful she is that her mom didn't go through this like she did during COVID because she said my mom, she, she would have just died from sadness. She said it was hard enough for me. And she was talking about how she had one breakdown and how her family had to minister to her to help her get out of that pit. Um, so we, we understand isolation and loneliness and the pain of it. So the psalmist continues, verse 12, he says, but you, O Lord, so now all of a sudden his vision shifts, suddenly there's a change. He says, but you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. So there's this change. There's a parting of the clouds and the light shines through and revelation comes and he's able to see and focus on the bigger eternal picture. Okay, For a minute, he was honed in on his temporary picture. He was honed in on lonely birds and the pain that he was experiencing. And now he's seeing the bigger eternal picture. So let's talk about that eternal picture. There's, there's, uh, there's kind of four parts that he names here to help him get an eternal perspective. First of all, he says, here's my situation. But then he says, but you, O Lord. Okay? Have you ever said to your kids, no ifs, ands, or buts? Right? Yeah. Stop. No, mm, no ifs, no ands, no buts. Just do it. Right? But in this, this is a but that's okay. But you, O Lord, okay, this one's okay. And that, honestly, in itself is enough. If we have a lot of things against us, one thing that a, that a Christian can always remember is the but, God, right? But God, but you, O Lord, much is against me, but you are for me. And it's a different kind of hope than what the world has. I remember reading about a man named Mitchell Heisman. He committed suicide in late 2010 in front of the Memorial Church on the campus of Harvard University. And the reason I remember it, and the reason that it was news more than some suicides, is because he left behind, his suicide note was 1,900 pages long. That's why. Okay, so he killed himself on, the, on this campus, and with him was a manuscript that he had written as kind of his assessment of the human condition. Okay, 1,900 pages. And basically what it amounts to is just a proof case of the hopelessness of humanity despite all of its progress. Okay, so he's, he's at Harvard, he's studying all kinds of science, and uh, basically he concludes it's a, it's a lot like Ecclesiastes, uh, like a 1900-page version of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all, it all comes to nothing. It means nothing. All the progress, all the advancements, that's kind of what he wrote. He filled... This book with admiring quotes from humanistic scholars and scientific professors. I use that term loosely, like guys like Richard Dawkins. 
Um, the note ends in complete hopelessness and despair, encapsulated by this quote, uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist who's also an atheist, Steven Weinberg, who said, the more we find out about the universe, the more meaningless it all seems. No matter what the circumstance though, the Christian has hope and meaning because they know the Creator. That's where the revelation begins to change the psalmist here. But you, O Lord, we know the author and dispenser of both meaning and creation. Whatever the situation, the Christian can always say, but you, O Lord. So that in itself makes all the difference. But then, uh, even more so, what's, what's so significant about our Lord? Well, He sits enthroned forever. The man in our psalm knows that God is on the throne. And, uh, you know, that can be tossed around at the wrong time in the wrong way. Like, oh, I'm sorry to hear you've lost it all, Roger, but God's still on the throne. Like, that's not necessarily the best time to cast that out there. Sometimes we just need to listen. We know Job's friends are an example of this. But God is on the throne. And what's even more important is that we know that He not only sits on the throne, but He cares about us. From His throne, He cares about us. He is in control, and the trials and tribulations that come my way don't catch Him by surprise, and He is working in all things for the good of His children whom He loves. Then He says, Your renown endures through all generations. So the psalmist points to the fact that there is no end. You sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. He's tested and tried throughout the ages. Every generation has testified about Yahweh. Every generation has seen His might and His goodness and His power to save. And then lastly, he says, you will arise and have compassion. In other words, so I've seen you do it before. I believe you'll do it again. For the appointed time has come. We also need to know there's an appointed time for all things. That difficulties won't go on forever. That this too will pass. And we need to remember that that may not be one minute after you say amen. Okay? But eventually, what, what the psalmist says is, I know that the appointed time will come. You will arise and have compassion. There is an appointment time for God to arise and have compassion over your situation, and we thank Him in advance for that. I think one, the two things that have really, really struck me, that seemed like the Lord really dealt with me this last year in our New Testament, in our reading of the New Testament as we went through the Bible, was how important gratitude is because our enemy, one of his primary ways of attack is discontentment. And I also think, I'll, I'll tell you this, it seems like whatever the Lord deals with me on uh, in, at any given time seems to be then the way that I need to give counsel in the near future. And so I've had a lot of discontented people come to me and say, well, this happened and I just, I just really need to change this in my life and I'm really sick of this and I'm really... And what I'm finding is that the enemy really, really goes after us by simply trying to undermine that which God is doing in our lives by telling us that there's got to be something better on the other side, that he's holding back, that you're missing out, that you need, you need to quit, you need to give up, you need to, you need to shut it down and go after something new, and often that leads us away from him. Gratitude uh, in advance, so knowing, okay, there is an appointed time where God will arise, where His compassion will be clear, and I will see what He was doing in this circumstance. God, thank You. I know that You're working in my circumstance. I will endure and be patient and, and push through this trial because I know You're with me. That You'll be with me to the end of the age, in fact. Okay, so the psalmist, he continues, "...the nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere Your glory." 
For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in His glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from His sanctuary on high. From heaven He viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. So now the man in, psalm, in the psalm is able to take courage and hope. He's lifting himself into the bliss of the coming day. He says, okay, not only is God on the throne now, but there is coming yet a day where he'll continue to be faithful and new people will walk in the glory of the Lord. The nations will all fear the Lord and the kings of the earth will see the glory of God. He's getting an eternal perspective that God has been on the throne, he is on the throne, he will be on the throne. And then the last verse is, In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, Do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. And this, psalm, this part of the psalm seems pretty obvious and straightforward. The psalmist cries out to God to not let him die and expresses his confidence in the internal, unchangeable nature of God. Right? He says, don't cut short my days. You go on forever. You don't change. So be gracious to me. But actually, there's a little twist here. And the twist is revealed to us by the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews quotes um, verses, verses uh, 25 through 27 in talking about Jesus. He quotes it as though Jesus Himself heard it from the Father, that the Father said it about Jesus. And so, actually, the New Testament authors, specifically the author of Hebrew, under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are revealing to us that Psalm 102 is not just written by a psalmist, but that it is also prophetically a conversation between the Son and the Father. That's the, and if you go back and read it through that light, that's the key that unlocks it. We begin to see this is a conversation between God the Father and His Son. And that's a statement that requires a little, mo- a little bit more unpacking. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm just going to read, read to you the whole chapter. The quotation of Psalm 102 is in verses 10 through 12, but I want, to see, I want you to see uh, how, what the case that the author of the Hebrews is building. So he begins, he says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So he establishes what I'm about to show you is how the prophets talked about, uh, talk, talked about God and, or how God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, He now has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, 
whom did God ever say this to? I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. God also says about His Son, and here is the quotation from Psalm 102, In the beginning, O Lord, You laid the foundations of the earth. Keep in mind, God is saying this about Jesus. Okay, You, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish, but You remain. They will all wear out like a garment, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So the writer of Hebrews wrote one of his main points to the Jews was to show how Jesus is better. Okay? Jesus is just, he's better. He's better than the angels. He's better than religion. He's better than all of the mystical beliefs that you've tried to adapt from other uh, cultures around you. He's better than military might. He's better than all of it. That's what, one of the primary aims of the Hebrew author. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's brought in a better covenant based on better promises. He literally says that uh, in Hebrews. And as he discusses in this chapter, uh, he's better than the angels. And to prove all this, he gives a series of quotes. Nearly all of them are from the Psalms where God the Father is speaking of or to His Son. Did you catch verse 9? He calls Jesus the Lord. He calls, so, so that's a Trinitarian passage right there that shows that Jesus is a part of, is, is God. Okay? Uh, he calls Him the Lord who created the universe, Right? Now, in verses 10 through 12, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 102 and says basically that it is actually God the Father speaking to his Son. So, those last verses, verses 25 through 28 of 102, is God speaking to Jesus. So, it turns out that though there was a psalmist who wrote this, he also was prophesying about a man in the future who would struggle and cry out to God and that he wouldn't be just any man but that it would be the anointed one, the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, is the one feeling the extreme loneliness. He is the one wondering if God is listening. He's the one facing death. He's the one with enemies surrounding Him and His name being cursed. He's the one taking comfort in the hope of God and the thoughts of eternity and the things to come. And that is why Jesus can relate to us. This is a passage that shows us, first of all, Jesus can relate to you when you feel lonely. When you feel like people are coming after you, Jesus can relate to you. In fact, the author in Hebrews, that is one of his other main themes. Okay, Hebrews 5, for example, verse 7 and 8, says, During the day of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. So he suffered, he struggled, he had trials, and he cried out to God. Although he was a son... And here, the Son is used to talk, to talk about Him as a human man. He learned obedience from what He suffered. 
He considered it, as James said, pure joy whenever he faced trials of many kinds because it produced within him perseverance and perseverance that produced in him faith. Hebrews chapter 2 says, because he himself, this is verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So first of all, Psalm 102 shows us that the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, can relate to us. If you've ever prayed prayers of lament, if you've ever said, God, where are you? Why does it seem like you're silent? If you've ever been frustrated with, the, with people seemingly pressing in all around you or struggles pressing in all around you, you're not alone. Jesus experienced that too. Which means He's also a model for how to press through it. Okay, Verse 23 and 24 I'll read to you again. So here, uh, all, verses 1-24 through 24 are all probably prophetic of Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. So with the inside of Hebrews, a lot of scholars say, okay, when I go back and I read Psalm 102, I think what I'm reading is I'm reading Jesus talking to God in the Garden of Gethsemane and then God responding to Him. I'm prophetically understanding the relationship of Jesus and possibly the conversation that's, uh, that's, that's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, Verse 23 and 24, Jesus still talking. He concludes his prayer. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. So uh, scholars say that this is, uh, Jesus, this is Jesus' final statement. Not my will, but your will be done. Please take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Because it's prophesied in Daniel 9.26 that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. It's also prophesied in Isaiah 53 verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. So here we have the Messiah prophesied to be quoting what was said about him. He will be cut off from God. And he's already said, my life's like smoke, my life's like withered grass, My life is like the evening shadow. In other words, my life will pass quickly. Uh, If you want to look at Psalm 90 verse 10, it says that the normal years of life for a human is 70 years, 80 years, if if God shows him favor. Okay? So Jesus' life ended about about halfway to that marker point. His life was cut off, if you will. So again, we're going back and we're reading this as though Jesus is talking to the Father. The birds that seemed unrelatable earlier are actually a lament about the Messiah's loneliness. T. Ernest Wilson, a missionary who spent 40 years in Angola, Africa, and his hobby was bird watching, wrote this in his own commentary on the psalm. He said, The pelican is a perfect picture of doleful misery. It sits on the edge of a swamp with its head upon its breast. It is the most somber, austere bird I ever saw. This doleful sight is followed by the owl. Its melancholy hoot is heard among ruined buildings. Moping in the ruins and sitting among fallen buildings and graveyards, it is a picture of the mourner. The sparrow, as I see it, is a social bird, but when it loses its mate, it is a mute picture of desolation. So he says, he concludes, these birds are emblems of the Messiah's utter abandonment and loneliness. And he, talk, and he then shares, he makes three points. He says, consider that Jesus' family rejected him. Okay? The, the Gospels tell us 
that, uh, his, that his, his brothers and sisters all abandoned him. That his, that his mother even scoffed or was perplexed at what was going on. She treasured the things away in her heart. She knew what God had told her, but she did not understand his mission or his purpose. Then he, he also points out that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took Peter, James, and John, his three closest disciples, in with him to pray with him and to be with him in his agony so that he would not be alone in his agony. But those three good, friend, good friends of his fell asleep and left him to pray on his own. And then lastly, he points out that in the end, he was betrayed by one of his close friends, denied by one of his very closest friends, and abandoned by all of them. Even left alone by his Father in heaven when he was separated by the darkness of sin. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But listen again then. So he says, please don't cut me off, but not my will, but your will be done. And from the author of the Hebrews, we now understand that in response to Jesus' humble contrition, this is what the Father assured him of. He he says, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You'll change them. Remember, a new heaven and a new earth, that's what it's alluding to. And they will be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Don't cut me off, God, but not my will. Your will be done. And God says to him, don't forget, you were there at the beginning You'll be there at the end. Your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. So the Father says, I hear your prayer, and I know the pain and suffering that you're going through, and I've not abandoned you to it. I'm with you in your brokenheartedness. I'm near to you as you have drawn near to me. Those are promises from the Scripture. And then he turns Jesus' focus to eternity. He, said, he essentially says, you were right to point out that I sit on my throne forever. That I, that, I have, that I have been and always will be. You were right to point out that my compassion will arise. I will stand from my throne and I will defeat all the things that have set themselves against you. He says, you know this because you were there at the beginning. You're also, you've also been in eternity with me. You laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of my hands. And then he takes them to the very end of the age and he says those things eventually are going to perish, but you will remain. He reminded Jesus that everything will come to an end, but he never will. They will wear out like a garment, but you remain and your years will never end. And then, most interestingly for us, I think, he reminded Jesus of the results of his suffering. This is what Hebrew, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 means when he says that he looked... Uh, He endured for the joy set before Him. What was the joy set before Him? Well, we hear right here, it is the children of your servants will live in your presence. In other words, your body, the body of believers, the church that will be raised up with you in the resurrection, they will live in your presence and they will be established before you forever. Here's what what you're doing this for, Jesus. This This is what the joy set before you. This is what's going to give you the strength to endure the cross and scorn its shame is the future servants of your kingdom. That's good news for you. That Yahweh said, your reward is you. Made in His image. 
established to co-create with Him. You said no. You rejected Him. Now Jesus is here, and he is go- the, the strength that He takes to endure the cross for our sake is that it would be for you. You were His joy set before Him so that He would endure the cross and scorn its shame. And that is the encouragement that Yahweh gives to Jesus as well. And so there's an invitation to us as well as we struggle. If He's the example for how to, how to endure in struggles, and if, Yah- if, if Yahweh's counsel to Jesus is to look to eternity, then maybe we could look at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16-18 through 18 and, see, and see that we also can endure in this same way. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, the Scripture, Paul is not making a mockery of your troubles. He's just putting them into perspective. He calls them light and momentary. I'm sorry if that offends anybody. Like, if he knew... No, he's just saying, in the grand scheme of things, they are light and momentary when you compare them to the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, what do we do? This is, this is, how, we, this is how we endure. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So there you go. That's, that's how we endure in the... We, we, though outwardly we're wasting away. I mean, Paul does acknowledge, man, it might feel like your body's just breaking down. It might feel like your relationships are against you. It might just feel like nothing, you can't catch a break. But inwardly, you have a different strength. And that's eternal perspective through relationship with Jesus. Through your belief and faith in His resurrection. Inwardly, you can get up every day and be renewed. Get up and your shoulder hurts. Your hips stuck. You, but inwardly, you can cling to the hope of the resurrection. This is a light and momentary struggle compared to the glory of God that outweighs it all. Amen? Okay. So in closing, a couple of quick lessons from the psalm. First of all, petition passionately. A little alliteration for you. Petition passionately. The main feature of Hebrew poetry, or one of the main features of Hebrew poetry, is repetition, especially this idea called parallelism. So parallelism is an idea that's stated in one line that's then followed by a second line in which that idea is repeated but in slightly different words. Okay, So that's a main feature of Hebrew poetry and of all the Psalms. This Psalm stands out as an extreme amount of parallelism. Those first two verses... It's six lines of poetry that are all virtually identical. They're all parallels. He says, hear my prayer. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face. Turn your ear to me. Answer me quickly. Five parallels in two verses. So this is no half-hearted or passive petition. Because the condition is desperate. Desperate conditions yield passionate petitions. The psalmist passionately prays and prophesies of a Messiah who will passionately pray for things that are heavy on their hearts. So when you have a need, go before God with passion. 
Go before Him with the kind of passion that believes that if He, tur- if he will turn His ear to me, go, go before Him with the kind of passion that the woman who bled for 12 years had. That if I could just touch the hem of His garment, if I could just touch Him, I think I might be well. Go, with him with that, go, go before Him with that kind of passionate expectancy, right? So I, I want to just give us some practical handles on this. The, the psalmist prays for four specific things. In verses 13 and 14, he prays for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In verse 15, 21, and 22, he prays for the conversion of future nations, of Gentile nations. In verse 18, he prays for the church of the future. And in verse 20, he prays for the deliverance of prisoners. So I want to give us four ways that we could apply that same prayer passionately to our present day. First of all, pray for the building of the kingdom of God. Pray for the building of the kingdom of God. That... that uh, and this is the way that I'm praying uh, in our church for the building of the kingdom of God. I am praying weekly for Eastwood Baptist Church. I'm praying weekly for Vine Branch Community Church. I'm praying weekly for uh, Calvary Baptist Church, Midway Baptist Church. Uh, the name of the one that's down at the bottom of the hill is slipping my mind. The one that meets in the little storefront. Um, breakthrough, yeah, Breakthrough Church. I'm praying. So I'm praying for. I'm praying that God's kingdom will be built up. That that you know, God, if you find favor, if you find us favorable to shepherd sheep, then send them here. But Lord, build your kingdom. Build, build. Use all the churches. Use all the pastors. Use them all to build your kingdom. Build it up, Lord. So pray for the rebuilding of the kingdom of God. Likewise, pray for the conversion of the lost. And that's where that's that's something on our monthly prayer meetings. And I just encourage you, if you want to to just apply practically like gathering and prayer together, come, come on a monthly basis on the first Sunday of the month to our prayer meeting. The conversion of the lost, we're pray, we've been praying that God would send workers for the harvest. We feel like God has been answering that abundantly. Just like we started praying that prayer and in a few months, like just out of the woodworks from different states, from all around the community, from, from all kinds of different walks of life. Uh, and, and we have differences in, in a lot of ways, but in the most important way, and that is in our belief that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, we are united. And God is using it. And so now, I'm saying, okay, God, You've sent all these people. Use us. Use our gifts. Use our passion. Use, use, use our faith and the work that You've done in us to reach the lost. To, as Acts chapter 2 says, to add to our number those, add to our number daily those who are being saved. Pray for the church around the world. Pray for, pray for missionaries, both in the states and outside of the states. Pray that uh, just as you know, the, the psalmist prays for the church of the future, pray for the church all around the world. And then lastly, pray for deliverance for anyone in bondage. The Messiah came and He preached good news to the poor, freedom for the captive, sight for the blind, right? He said, today, this, has all, this is all happening in your presence, Jesus said. So let's, be, let's pray that He would bring deliverance to all kinds of bondage. The deliverance, deliverance from all kinds of addictions, deliverance from all kinds of pain and all kinds of regret and, and all kinds of, of uh, past hurt. Deliverance, deliverance from bitterness. Pray for deliverance for anyone in bondage. So passionately persistent. Secondly, second lesson from the psalm, change is constant in our lives on earth, but changelessness is a constant of the anointed one. Change is a constant of our lives, but changelessness is a constant of the anointed one. The, the theological word for changelessness is immutability. 
immutability. That God, God is who He is. He's Yahweh. He's I Am. Like, I am who I am. I never change. Like, God can't get any better, and He won't get any worse. He is already the full realization of the things that He said about Himself. That He's the full realization of love. He's the full realization of justice. He's the full realization of holiness. So when change is a constant in our lives, if you read these last verses, if you read the verses in the middle, as the Father and the Son converse with one another, they talk about the ch- their changelessness, their immutability. And they do so in contrast to the ever-changing circumstances of the earth. So change is a constant in our lives on earth. My great-great-grandfather, who was born somewhere around 1900, I didn't get a text back from my parents to know exactly when that was, but he was born somewhere around 1900. I do know he was a wagon maker, and he would have had more in common with Abraham, who lived 4,000 years ago, than he would have with his great-great-grandson, who is only 120 years separated from him. Think about that. Change is a constant on the earth, and it's accelerating. Okay? It's accelerating at a crazy, crazy rate. That's how, that's how radical the changes of the 20th century to now have been, is that my great-great-grandfather would have more in common with Abraham than he would with me. Okay? <laughs> it's been a crazy, crazy 120 years or so. There's been more information that produced in the last 30 years than in the previous 5,000. There's been more than one half the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. 90% of all the items in the supermarket today didn't exist 10 years ago. It's estimated that 50% of college graduates are going into jobs which didn't exist when they were born. (laughs) The top technology jobs in 2020 didn't exist in 2005. Think about that. A lot of it's great in some ways. It can be a tool much like the Roman roads were a tool for the gospel to spread, right? Certainly, we, they can be used for good. But change, and you, you might have experienced this yourself, is a chief producer of anxiety in societies. Change is a chief producer of anxiety in societies. But the promise about God, Malachi 3.6, says, he says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. He says, I, if, if, if everything else around you is changing, I will remain constant. You can count on that. That's a good word. God never has a bad day. He never needs an attitude adjustment. He is who He is, and He has revealed that He is good, and He is just, and He is loving, and He is merciful. Because God is immutable, no matter what's happening in your life, you can know His love for you never changes. His mercy towards you never changes. His grace given you never changes. In fact, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 Paul writes to Timothy, he says, here's a, here's a trustworthy saying, verse 11, if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. He says, if you've put yourself in Him, you will immutably, unchangingly experience the resurrection power. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Now, if we disown Him, if we exit the, His covering, He will also disown us. However, when we are faithless, when we struggle, when we struggle, when we doubt, when we're hurting, when we're, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's staked his life to ours. When you said yes to him, you became a part of him. And he will, if you will continually look up, he'll finish the good that he began in you. That's Philippians. The one who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it to completion. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The anointed one is still seeking his lost sheep. 
The anointed one is still interceding for his saints before the Father's throne. The anointed one is still inviting whosoever will to the great banquet. And lastly, the last lesson here, be the kind of disciple and friend that you want others to be for you in the midst of your loneliness. Be the kind of disciple and friend in the midst of others' loneliness that you want people to be in the midst of your loneliness for you. I was just thinking about this from a practical perspective, that when you go through pain of any kind, whether it be a surgery or a tragedy, you never forget the people that are there for you in those moments, right? And if people aren't there for you, it, stands, it sticks out like a sore thumb and it makes you want to reevaluate your whole life, right? So knowing that, don't make the mistake of the disciples who abandoned Jesus in His agony. Be the friend and the disciple that you would want someone to be for you, for others. Be, be the one who will drop everything. Be the one who will sit by their side. Be the one who will send the text, who will make the phone call, who will check in regularly. Be that one. That's a simple lesson. I don't think I need to say much more about that. So, looking at this psalm, take heart that Jesus needed encouragement for the trouble in this world too. If you feel like this world is trouble, take heart. But also, take advantage of the available intimacy with Him as you navigate this world of trouble. In other words, John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart in Jesus and take advantage. Receive wholeheartedly His grace and His mercy that He's available to you and understands who you are and what you're going through. Amen? Jesus, You're good all the time and all the time You are good. In fact, You are immutably good, unchangingly good. And what a hope and what a friend we have in You. God, I... I just pray that uh, by Your grace, you would, you would help us each day to wake up and to expand our perspective beyond what's in front of us, whether it's aches and pains, scheduled dread, <laughs> whatever's in front of us, that we would expand our sight to the eternal. Not what is temporary, not just what we can see with our eyes, but Lord, that You would give us eyes that could see the eternal that You would answer the prayer of Elisha. Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. Lord, show us, show us your, your armies all around. Show us, show us Your glory and Your power and Your plan. And show us that Your mighty, sovereign hand. Remind us of what You've done and set our hearts on what You will do. Give us hearts to believe that You will arise and that when You do, it will be with compassion and it will be for our good. And Lord, help us to be that person too. Turn our hearts towards those who we see going through it. Uh, Lord, make us disciples, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends who would carry the burdens of one another. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.